1 Corinthians 15. Is that better? We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15. And it's Grow Up, the Gospel of the Risen Jesus. So what Paul has done in this section is he has decided to talk to the Corinthian church and explain what they lose if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So if we backtrack just a little bit to give you a little bit of the background, we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. At this point, Paul's reiterating what he taught them while he was with them. This chapter he goes on to explain again what it actually means. And this is a long chapter, long section, so we're only going to skim the surface of it. Paul is particularly concerned with the, the thoughts, um, the preaching of some, that yes, while Jesus rose from the dead, as is right and as fitting for the Son of God, there's no resurrection for us who are just mere mortals. Well, if there was a resurrection, then it's spirit only. And that's where he starts off in this section that we're looking at now. So he starts off by treating it, as I said, as an exercise of what do we lose if it didn't happen. Very aware that he's talking to Corinthian Greeks, and Corinth is known for its schools of rhetoric and oratory, he goes back to the basics. And he treats this as an exercise in logic. He asks them to think back to what they first heard, what they first accepted. As he points out in verse 3 and 4, What I received I passed on to you as first importance, as Lou stressed last week. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This has been preached, he says in verse 12 again. So how do you now say there's no resurrection of the dead? I preached it to you. You accepted it at the beginning. What happened? So now he goes on to explain what he means. And the implication in the next few verses. So let's read from verses 12 to 18. Everybody got it? If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, if 
if it has been preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who live, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Sometimes Paul's arguments are easy to follow. Sometimes. Sometimes he jumps around all over the place. In actual fact, this one is reasonably simple. Either it happened, he says, or it didn't happen. Fairly logical with me so far? What he's saying is there's no halfway point. If there is a resurrection, then the dead are raised. Yeah? If there's no resurrection, then no one is raised. If Jesus was not raised, then we are wasting our time. The bottom line is, as he says, then we have been found to be false witnesses. Because we, Paul, have said that Christ was raised, but if Christ was not raised, then no one is raised. Paul's never afraid to face the issues, is he? He faces them head on, but he doesn't leave it there. He goes on to explain what he means. Verse 17 says, 16 and 17, If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And there's the crux of the matter. Hold that thought for a moment. See, many people, especially in Paul's day, happens even now, join a church because they like the lifestyle. They like the friendship, the sense of community, the belonging, the networking, or because they know that they're going to be looked after there. And I suspect that was the case in Paul's day especially. And there's a thought that even today, that sometimes being part of a church will make you good. As if being good is all that it takes to get you into heaven. But that's not what it's all about. It's about knowing that without the death, without the resurrection of Jesus, we don't have that forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus' physical resurrection, yes, his physical resurrection from the dead, then even those who call themselves Christians are just as lost as everyone else. As it says in verse 18, if those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, 
Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. But in verse 19, he says, if only, for this li- if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If we're only trying to be good for this life, we are to be pitied for holding on to a false hope. What's the point? But I would ask, is that false hope really so false? I was doing a little bit of research on this and I came across a quotation. I don't know who it's from. But a famous Christian philosopher once said to an atheist, if you live your life for today and I live my life for eternity, when we both die, we will see that either you were right or I was right. If I was right, you've wasted your life and you will answer, and you will answer for it. If, on the other hand, you are right, then you will know no different and I will still have lived a better life for it. However, our hope is not just to be better people. Our hope is in Christ. At this point in the passage, Paul does one of his famous detours. Paul's famous for doing this. He stops at a particular point and he does a detour right round the passage, taking the scenic route, so that when he comes back to it, you've got the big picture. Verses 20 to 28 are almost in parenthesis. He's good at doing this. The whole of 1 Corinthians 13, section on love, as we saw a little while ago with Andy Atkins. That's almost in parenthesis, in brackets, because he's explaining something before going on. And this is what he's doing here. So speaking to the Jews in the church, those who are familiar with Jewish customs, he starts building up to the point that he's about to make. So let's read from verses 19 to 21. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, but so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. First, Christ the first fruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So we backtrack a moment. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Now the Jewish believers would have immediately understood exactly what was going on here. The Greek people in the church were going, what? First fruits, what's that? So let me explain. First fruits is a festival that they held, a bit like a harvest festival at the beginning of every year. Leviticus 23.10 says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you first enter the promised land I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice the burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb a year old without defect. And he goes on to explain about the sacrifice of the lamb. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to us? When the children of Israel entered the promised land, the first sheaf of the first harvest was to be very carefully cut, harvested. And this was a lasting ordinance which they continued to do every year. They would take that first sheaf and they would take it to the temple, the tabernacle as it was then. They would give it to the priest and in the presence of all the people, he would then lift it up before the Lord. If this sheaf was acceptable, then the rest of the harvest would be acceptable too. It would be acceptable for ceremonial sacrifices and gifts, but more importantly, it would also guarantee the rest of the harvest. It was understood that the acceptability and the productivity of the harvest was reliant upon the first fruit being accepted, not the care put into the growing of the crop. In much the same way, I found this on the internet, that is the chief rabbi of London examining the first fruit being harvested two years ago. So, in much the same way, Jesus was lifted up in front of the people. He was offered as a first fruit to the Lord. In much the same way, he was accepted, guaranteeing the rest of the harvest, his people. Just as the first chief was just like the rest of the harvest, so Jesus was a man just like us. In much the same way, it's understood that the acceptability of the harvest rests upon whether he was accepted or not. If you are part of that harvest, then you know that you have been accepted. You are acceptable not just because of how big you have grown, how much that you have produced, it's simply proof that you have been accepted. But your acceptability is in the fact that the first sheaf, Jesus, has already been accepted by God. And being just like us, if he rose, then we will too. 
Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the, of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Allow me to illustrate that just a little bit. It's a very good illustration as it stands, but let me show you what it means. I have here a letter. Looks like it, doesn't it? I have here an envelope. If I put the letter, which is you, your life, into this envelope, which is Christ, there is a scripture that says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are in Christ, are you not? So whatever happens to this envelope happens to you. Yeah? With me so far? If I put the envelope into the bucket, where is the letter? In the bucket. If something happens to the envelope, it happens to the letter. But you are in Christ, are you not? If death came through a man, as verse 21 says, then the resurrection also came through a man. If you are in Christ, when Christ died, you died to sin. When Christ rose, you rose in him. Verse 21 says, if death came through a man, the resurrection came through a man. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, we will live. But we don't see this immediately, do we? That's because, as Paul says in verse 23, each in its own turn. First Christ, the first fruit, had to be lifted up. When he comes back, those who belong to him. And here Paul launches off down another rabbit hole. He's good at doing this. Now he explains what he just said. Verses 23 to 28. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. We read that just now. Now sometimes I think that we make things difficult for ourselves because we expect something to be difficult and it's not. When we find it easy, we think we've missed something. Sometimes we're right. But in answering the question, when will all these things happen, Paul explains firstly that all Jesus' enemies will be made subject to him, Jesus. They will be placed under his feet. Then he will hand over all dominion, power and authority to God his Father. Then in verse 28, Paul says, Jesus will then subject himself to God his Father. And having made his point, finally, Christ, Paul comes back to the point that he was making originally. But what happens if there's no resurrection? Verses 29 to 34. 
Now, if there is no resurrection, what will happen? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, merely for human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Verse 29, I'll look at very briefly. That's caused almost more debate than most other verses I know of. Baptism from the dead, what is Paul on about? Let's read it again. If there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? There are so many theories about this, it's difficult to know where to begin. So having sifted through many of them, I'll take a leaf out of Paul's book and I will tell you what it is not. It is not the Mormon practice of baptizing people for the sake of another person in order that that person may be saved. For a start, that goes against the whole idea of you coming to a personal knowledge of who Jesus is. The dead cannot make a personal confession of faith, as it is commanded in Romans 10. Baptism is a symbolic act. Baptism does not save you. Rather, baptism illustrates the fact that you are saved. It shows your identification with Christ himself in death, burial, and resurrection. And here we have an envelope in a bucket. What's in the envelope? A letter. You are in Christ. It is symbolic. It's a bit like a seed that's buried before coming back to life. It's you becoming part of that harvest, so to speak, to continue his analogy. So having looked at many commentators, I found that the most logical of all of them is Anthony Thistleton one of the foremost modern Greek scholars. He points out that the original Greek text can be translated as, what will those do who are baptized for the sake of the dead? And he quotes someone else, J.K. Howard, who writes, baptism for the sake of the dead is not in order to remedy some deficiency on part of the dead, but in order to be reunited with them in resurrection. In other words, if we have an example of somebody who is dying, and they say to a relative, come to Christ, have him as your personal saviour. When that person dies, that other person will think, 
yes, I must do this because I know that they will come to Christ, have come to Christ, and in doing so, they will be raised. If I want to see that person again, I too must come to Christ. When I am raised to life with Christ, I will see them then. So let me read that again. Baptism for the sake of the dead is not in order to remedy a deficiency on, part of, on the part of the dead, but in order to be re- reunited with them in the resurrection. And I think that makes sense. I think this fits in with the whole part of what Paul is saying in this passage. The whole of the rest of the passage deals with things that people do for the sake of Christ. Read that part again. It says, verse 30. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day, and I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus merely for human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. So as I said, Paul is looking for the things done for the sake of the gospel. Why do we endanger ourselves every hour, he writes. If Christ was not raised, then everything that we've done is pointless. If it's pointless, why do we bother fighting wild animals in Ephesus? If there's nothing to live for, as he says, well, we might as well party. Does it sound familiar? It's a very common attitude, and Paul warned against it. If you have people like that in the church, he warns, beware, because that attitude will spread. Living for the present only is not what being a Christian is all about. Come back to your senses, he writes. Stop sinning, for there are some of you who are still ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. Paul's whole point in bringing people back to the truth of the risen Lord is that they do not know God personally. They are not spreading the word of a risen Savior. It's a shameful thing. And I'm going to go out on a limb. And I would ask you to consider your reply to the accusation if this letter was written to Portswood Church. There's an old hymn that says, We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. Do you know that Savior? This passage is all about what we lose if Christ did not rise from the dead. But from this passage we can see there is a resurrection from the dead because Jesus did die and rise again. If he rose our first fruits, then so will he. Now that is a lot to live for. That is what Paul is asking you to do to live for the sake of the gospel 
so that you will see your reward. And so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to end with a passage from next week, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thank you.